You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. Our subject today is the common good. As most of you know, this is a very difficult subject. Usually when the common good is mentioned, not much of an attempt is made to give a very precise definition. And if you were to ask people what they thought the common good was, you'd probably have as many answers as there are people. A recent Catholic social doctrine still holds that the highest purpose of the political community is to promote the common good. Now, this seems clear enough until one asks what church documents mean by the term. Echoing John XXIII's Mater Magistra and Pacem in Terris, quoting Vatican II's Gaudium et Spes, the Catechism of the Catholic Church describes the common good as, quote, the sum total of the conditions of social life which allow people, either as groups or individuals, to reach their own perfection more fully and more easily, end quote. In a more specific paragraph, the Catechism adds, the common good consists of three elements, respect for and promotion of the fundamental rights of the person, prosperity or the development of the spiritual and temporal goods of society, the peace and security of the group and its members, end quote. Except for the reference to spiritual goods, this seems to be a purely instrumental description of the common good. Instrumental refers to goods that facilitate the attainment of our proper end as human beings, but are not part of that end, such as food, clothing, shelter, a transportation system, civil liberties, etc. Instrumental goods would not include such important civic goods as the practice of the faith, character formation in the schools, forgiveness and reconciliation among racial and ethnic groups, the promotion of fidelity in marriage, courtesy, the prohibition of euthanasia, the promotion of a commitment to the poor, etc. In both Mater Magistra and Pachamenteris, Pope John XXIII had described the common good as the sum total of the conditions of social life by which people may reach their perfection more easily. So John XXIII's encyclicals are clearly the source of the definition found in Vatican Council II's Gaudium et Spes and the Catechism. The only difference is that Pope John XXIII speaks of people, homines, instead of individuals in groups, but this doesn't change the substantial identity of the two definitions. Writing on Christian social doctrine, Oswald von Nell Bruning, the well-known architect of Pius XI's Quadragesimo Anno, a 1931 social encyclical, referred to Pope John's definition of the common good as an organizational and organizing value, what we would call the common welfare or instrumental goods. These would include the whole panoply of rights described in Pacem and Terrace. Now, Bruning says that Pope John's understanding of the common good differs from the traditional view articulated by Thomas Aquinas. For Aquinas, the highest purpose of politics is to promote virtue in the body politic. Therefore, the common good in a Thomistic perspective includes not only instrumental goods, but also goods that perfect the human soul. God is the common good par excellence. Now, Bronig says that Thomistic authors understand 
by the term common good the perfection of human nature in all citizens. And summing up the differences between the Thomistic understanding of the common good and Pope John's view, he writes, the common welfare is a most important value in the service of the good, whereas the common good is a value in itself. It appears that Pope John XXIII, Vatican Council II, and the New Catechism have officially endorsed a limited notion of the common good, thereby quietly putting aside the long-standing teaching that the political community, with the help of the church, intermediary associations or mediating institutions and individuals should attempt to describe and pursue a substantive common good, that is to say, a common good that has its ultimate focus, the perfection of individual citizens. Even Germain Griset interprets the papal documents to mean, quote, that the church's teaching treats the common good of political society as instrumental to the full good of persons, end quote. The purpose of my lecture is to show that the church has not, in fact, adopted a purely instrumental understanding of the common good, appearances notwithstanding. What's more, the church could not embrace an instrumental notion of the common good without endangering the mission of the church. The catechism's mention of spiritual goods as an element of the common good will prove to be a guiding light as we revisit the two encyclicals of Pope John XXIII, Vatican II's Gaudium et Spes, and the Declaration on Religious Liberty of Vatican II, as well as several writings of Pope John Paul II. Pope John XXIII's encyclical Pachamon Terrace is justly well known for presenting a synthesis of Catholic teaching on human rights. Less notice is John XXIII's teaching on duties. Having listed the rights of the human person, John XXIII affirms that there are just as many corresponding duties. He adds that rights, as well as duties, find their source, their sustenance, and their inviolability in natural law, which grants or enjoins them. For example, to the right to life corresponds the duty to preserve it. To the right of having a worthy standard of living corresponds the duty of living in a suitable manner. With the right of freely investigating truth goes the duty of seeking it with all one's ability. A person also has the natural duty to acknowledge and respect all the natural rights of others and to contribute to a civic order in which the exercise of rights and the fulfillment of duties are a reality. Now, if we ask, what is the precise relation between rights and duties? Pope John answers, quote, the chief concern of civil authorities must be to ensure that these rights are acknowledged, respected, coordinated with other rights, defended and promoted, so that in this way, each one may more easily carry out his duties. Now, when the passage is cited in John Paul II's Evangelium Vitae, there is a new translation which reads, the chief concern of civil authorities must be to ensure that these rights are recognized, respected, coordinated, defended and promoted, and that each individual is enabled to perform his duties more easily. The translation in Evangelium Vitae seems to be literally accurate, while the first translation captures what Pope John is trying to say, namely that we have rights so that we can more easily fulfill our duties. That Pope John clearly places rights in a teleological framework is the only reasonable conclusion to draw. The context itself points to this interpretation. 
Right after speaking in his own name, he quotes the famous 1941 Pentecost address of Pius XII. Quote, to safeguard the inviolable rights of the human person and to take care that each may more easily fulfill his duties should be the chief duty of every public authority. End quote. All through his Pentecost radio address, Pius XII indicates that people have rights for the sake of duties. One example will have to suffice. The right to the use of material goods, intimately linked as it is to the dignity and other rights of the human person, provides man with a secure material basis of the highest import on which to rise to the fulfillment with reasonable liberty of his moral duties." End quote. The logic of Catholic doctrine and social teaching also requires the ordering of rights to duties or to the divine law. The clearest statement of that position that I have found is in Vatican II's Gaudium et Spes, which says, For we are tempted to think that our personal rights are fully insured only when we are exempt from every requirement of divine law. But in this way, the dignity of the human person is by no means saved. On the contrary, it is lost. Pope John XXIII would not disagree with this Vatican II formulation. Now, if we ask John XXIII, what is the relation of rights and duties to the common good? He responds, quote, In our time, the common good is thought to be especially guaranteed when rights and duties are maintained. End quote. Even if the government did all it could to protect rights, that would not be sufficient to realize the common good of a community. Citizens who are secure in their rights may, on their own, carry out their duties which their consciences dictate, or they may choose not to perform any duties, except their duty not to infringe on the rights of others. John XXIII clearly says that the attainment of the common good depends on citizens performing their duties. In other words, the government can't achieve its proper end if citizens are not moved to carry out their duties by such institutions as families, churches, schools, and other mediating institutions. It almost goes without saying that the ruling authorities would also have to perform their duties. If the performance of duties by government authorities and ordinary citizens is necessary for the attainment of the common good, then Pope John is surely not proposing a purely instrumental common good. But why then does he propose what sounds like a misleading definition? I used to think that Nell Brunig was correct in his interpretation of John's definition of the common good as the sum total of instrumental goods needed by human beings. I was impressed by Nell Bruning because he recognizes that modern Catholic social doctrine really does endorse a substantive common good, even though in his mind it proposes only instrumental definitions on several important occasions. He doesn't attempt to explain why church documents would only define a subordinate sense of the common good and leave undefined the church's more complete understanding of this term. In his commentary on Gadim Espez, Nell Bruning writes, quote, when ecclesiastical documents give a definition of the common good, it usually concerns this second and subordinate sense. This is the case with reference to John XXIII, Mater Magistra number 65. On the other hand, if mention is simply made of the common good, the term denotes or implies the value in itself, end quote. As a value in itself, Nelbrunig means all the goods which belong to fully developed humanity, 
the full exercise and realization of all the potentialities and faculties inherent in man in society. Now these comments are helpful, but don't explain why definitions and descriptions of the common good seem so different. Pope John XXIII's definition of the common good just doesn't seem to capture what he really means, as appears even more closely from a look at other parts of Pachamenteris. Just before he reiterates his mater et magistra definition, Pope John XXIII says, the common good touches the whole man that needs both his body and soul. Then he adds, therefore, it follows that the civil authority should procure for citizens, along with the goods of the body, the goods of the soul as well. No, he says the civil authorities have that responsibility to attend to the goods of the soul. Now, it's noteworthy that John XXIII uses the Latin expression bona animi, goods of the soul, in spelling out the responsibilities of government. It is the same expression used by Pope Leo XIII in Rerum Novarum. In the very next sentence and paragraph of his text, he links his statement on the responsibility of civil authorities for the souls of citizens to the teaching of Mater Magistra and to the now famous definition of the common good. Then he argues that the common good ought to be procured in such a way as to contribute to the salvation of all. Now, there are still other comments in Pachamenteris indicating that Pope John didn't intend to propose a mere instrumental notion of the common good. When discussing the subject of law, he says, it is unquestionable that a legal structure in conformity with norms of the just and right and corresponding to the level of development of the state is of great advantage for achieving common advantages for all, end quote. This is a very high standard for law. Later on, while discussing relations between Catholics and non-Catholics in social and economic affairs, he suggests that the virtue of prudence is important for the achievement of the common good. Quote, prudence is the guiding light of the virtues that regulate life, both individual and social. Finally, when discussing the conditions for the establishment of peace, he says, in fact, there can be no peace among men unless there is peace within each one of them, unless each one builds up within himself the order wished by God. Then he explains what he means by quoting from St. Augustine, that peace depends on order in the soul, which can only be achieved by adhering to God's will through the practice of the virtues. As peace has to be one of those conditions of social life of which Pope John speaks, then the practice of virtue by individuals has to be an integral part of the common good. There is another very revealing statement in Pachamenteris that is quoted at length by the Catechism in the section on conversion and society. This is in number 1886. Time does not allow me to read from that at the moment. This passage really prepares the way for the Catechism's treatment of the common good, which follows in the next section. John XXIII's bona animi, or the goods of the soul, must at least include conversion, the virtues, especially charity, and knowledge or wisdom, and be among the spiritual goods that the Catechism describes as one of the three elements of the common good. What seems so significant in John XXIII's thought is that every part of civil society and the government must be guided in some way by an understanding of the bona animi, the goods of the soul. In the light of 
all Pope John XXIII's teaching pertaining to the common good, it is reasonable to conclude that he didn't realize that his definition of a common good would be understood as endorsing an instrumental understanding of the common good. Otherwise, he would have formulated it differently. He must have thought that social conditions allowing for a full and expeditious attainment of a person's perfection could not be understood as mere instrumental goods. That he is now misunderstood can be traced to several causes, such as the ignorance of political philosophy in Catholic circles and the influence of political liberalism. Now, the teaching of Vatican II also sees the bona animi as an essential part of the common good. Now, a brief look at Gaudium Spes and Dignitatis Humanae, that is a Declaration on Religious Freedom, I think will confirm my assertion. And I am not going to be able to do justice to Gaudium Spes in what time that remains, but I think we can find some very important statements in that pastoral constitution. It says that the education of youth must be so carried out that there can be produced not only men and women of refined talents, but those great-souled persons who are so desperately needed by our times. This is another way of saying that a nation's educational institutions must not omit to form the character of its young citizens because such education is an integral part of the common good. No society, therefore, should renounce the effort to have a public conversation on the content of character formation in the public schools. What public institutions can do will largely depend on the prevailing moral consensus in society. It is important to note that public schools will always be giving some kind of moral education, even when they naively or dishonestly claim to be neutral on the teaching of values. Private educational institutions will not be as constrained by the prevailing moral culture if they are able to hold on to their identity. They will make an eminent contribution to education and therefore to the common good if they are able to keep alive teaching about Christian virtue, natural right, and natural law. Chapter 3 of Part 1 of the Gaudium et Spes, entitled Human Activity Throughout the World, makes an important point about love or charity. The key text says that the word of God became man and reveals to us that God is love, and at the same time teaches us that the fundamental law of human perfection, and therefore of the world's transformation, is the new command of love. This love is to be shown in all the great and ordinary circumstances of life. Now, since the practice of love contributes to the common good, then the pursuit of perfection and the work to transform the world are part of the common good. Now, while the subject matter of chapter one of the first part of Gaudium et Spes is the dignity of the human person, the first chapter of the second part is entitled On Fostering the Dignity of Marriage and the Family. This is a fitting parallelism. The key text reads, the well-being of the person in a human and Christian society is intimately connected with a healthy condition of marriage in the family. It is in the family that parents ennoble themselves by bringing children into the world and educating them in the faith. Children first learn to practice virtue and become aware of their duties toward others. Because so many great goods flow from domestic well-being, Gaudium et Spes urges both civil society and the government 
to promote the good of marriage and the family. The specific recommendation to government is instructive. Quote, public authority should regard it as a sacred duty to recognize, protect, and promote their authentic nature, to shield public morality, and to favor the prosperity of domestic life, end quote. Since the political community exists for the common good, then the latter must include the protection of public morality and efforts by the government to promote the mission of the family. In chapter four on the life of the political community, the council fathers say that no better way exists for attaining a truly human political life than by fostering an inner sense of justice, benevolence, and service for the common good. In other words, the virtues of love and justice contribute to a human political life and therefore to the common good of the political community. In the next chapter, Gaudium Spes teaches that peace is a work of justice, and likewise the fruit of love, which goes beyond what justice can provide. No one can doubt that peace is an important element of the common good. If peace depends on the practice of charity and justice, then these virtues are an essential part of the common good. It is also not surprising to find in this same section a general statement about the common good, which reads, the common good of the human race is in its basic sense governed by the eternal law. As the eternal law is not focused on instrumental goods, this is surely another indication that the common good of political communities must include the bona animi, the goods of the soul. Now, the church also teaches lay Christians that they have an obligation in conscience to see that the divine law is inscribed in the life of the earthly city. Again, this is practically an impossible task to accomplish throughout society but feasible in selected instances. For example, maintaining the legal prohibition of euthanasia in the United States is not yet out of reach. The Vatican Council too, of course, recognizes that the people of the world need encouragement to face the challenge of working for a subordinate, although high level, common good. Hence, the council implies that the life and words of all members of the church must continually show that the church, by her presence alone and by all the gifts which she possesses, is the inexhaustible source of those virtues which the modern world most needs. I would like to conclude my brief treatment of Gaudium et Spes by citing a passage that sums up the contribution of the church to the common good of civil society. Quote, when the church, relying on its God-given mission, preaches the gospel and imparts the treasures of grace to all, it is contributing throughout the world to the strengthening of peace and helping to lay what is the firm foundation of community among individuals and peoples, namely knowledge of the divine and natural law, end quote. Observance of the natural law, the divine law, and the reception of grace are all necessary for realizing an elevated common life in the nations of the world. In our next lecture, 
which will be a continuation of our reflection on the common good, we will look at Vatican II's Declaration on Religious Liberty and a speech given by John Paul II at the United Nations in October of 1995. And then we will look at some of the reasons why Catholic social teaching has a teaching on the common good, and then make a few concluding remarks. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.